You are so wise. I just sit here. Old wise Hindmarch, we call him. Don't crack wise at me, Hindmarch. Mm. You wise acre. Anyway. All right. We should talk about a thing. We should, we should get to work. We should get to work. We should do what we're getting paid to do. <laughs> this is the Design Games Podcast. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. My name is Nathan Pletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. Nathan, what are we talking about on the show this time? This time we're talking about antagonism between players and players and players and characters and characters and players or anywhere else that dynamic can occur in your game. Nathan, what does your character want in the Insomniac Fighter Pilot game? What is it that your character is after? Well, clearly my Insomniac Fighter Pilot just wants to end this terrible war you know, the bombing campaign is the only thing that's going to do it. So even though he hates it, he's going to do the best he can. It's actually going to alleviate as much you know, more suffering if we can end this war early and he can stay up for multiple flights and get more bombs out in a shorter amount of time. You are out of bombs and your plane is destroyed. I need to, need to get back to base. I need to hook back up with my regiment. You're there. You're at base. And your plane has been destroyed and you're out of bombs. The regiment has no more bombs. There's nothing you can do. You're powerless. Am I being a good kind of antagonistic or am I not Mm. being helpful? It depends on whether there's nothing you can do is, is true or not. If every, if, if every attempt to do something is met with a block, then why are we, why are we playing this game? Right. But if the frame is, you know, here, all the resources you thought were at your disposal are gone. You, you do not have the power that you thought you were going to have. What do you do? Like, oh well, then I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna jury rig this truck to. There are no trucks. This is why when, when, when you said I want to get back to base, you immediately made it dramatic. You immediately made it into a story. Okay, then it's a story about me getting back to base so I can keep fighting the war. Right. And so and so you you cut off the story, right? We right. Did, we did get to see that story. Right. Right. I changed the premise right around you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's not really antagonism. That's that's just being and that's just being antagonistic. <laughs> right. It's, there's a difference. So in that instance, you're not giving my character a a uh, a wall to bounce out off of. It's just a wall. To me, what antagonism is doing is saying it's not going to be that easy. Right. You're not writing your own story where you can just say what happens. There's going to mm-hmm. be something that you are going to have to overcome, either a literal physical challenge. You know, you have to cross the, the this mountain pass to get back to the base because you crashed on the other side of it right or if Mm -hmm. it's like more of the metaphorical you know you're presented with a choice of just ditching out and leaving and leaving it all behind and hiding out in this hamlet and waiting for the war to end without you or you can engage in this struggle to get back to this thing that you believe in that's something that the an internal character choice that i have to overcome the way that i've already directed the character the Decisions I've over already made, what I think will be dramatic. Maybe one of those choices lines up with my stats and skills and resources, and therefore it is easier for me to take that path because I know I can be effective on it while the other one doesn't. And so that can be where the choice comes in. Right. So I guess what, what gets me is there's this longstanding friction between antagonism as it actually works in a design and narrative sense which is that if you will the the author of the story of a novel whatever of a, of a non-game 
tale mm -hmm. does antagonize their characters, right? right? That's that's the term that's that's an applicable term, and they 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 write the antagonist as well as the protagonist. Mm -hmm. In play, being antagonistic is bad when you are antagonizing in the way that we use it socially, the right. word socially. Mm -hmm. But when you use it narratively, being antagonistic can be good mm -hmm. because you're doing it in a way that acts as a foil or, a, or as, a, as a prompt for a character, mm -hmm. a setup that helps them demonstrate themselves. I, so think, I feel like there's a conflict or a, a, an un, an, a kind of unhelpful tension in that word. Right. Well, I think maybe that's why earlier I immediately said, well, you're not being antagonistic. Right. Right. Or you're not being an antagonist, you're just being antagonistic on the player level, right? But it's hard to separate out because if you have your protagonists and then you have an antagonist character in the same way that you do in a movie or a book or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that's on the character level. And then if you have the one-to-one the -one relationship between the GM plays the antagonist's characters and the other players play protagonist characters, then there's, a, there's that melding where that I think people see and experience and, and get through you know, hopefully, where you want the character to be that literary style antagonist, but as a player, you know, so you're providing, so I guess that's where I'm coming to the vocabulary of providing antagonism. Sure. Right? It's coming through that vector of envisioning it in this character. And the player's the one who actually doing it. Like, the, the, the characters aren't real. The players at the table are the ones who are providing these things for each other. But the players aren't trying to overcome each other, necessarily. Right. In the same way that they might in like Twilight Imperium. Right. Right. The, there's a further entangling here, which I think is very fruitful and fascinating to me, which is that playing a good antagonist and antagonizing a good player are mm. obviously different things. Yes. Or anta being antagonizing as a player versus playing a good antagonist are also different things. Right. But there's also the fact that in a story whether it's a game story or a, 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 a straight fiction story, a procedural story, whatever it is, the role of the antagonist and the protagonist is dependent in a large part on the point of view, right? Which is that the right. protagonist is the, is the character that we follow and the antagonist is the one that we hope doesn't succeed or vice versa or any other recombination mm -hmm. thereof with antiheroes and stories told by villains and all right. sorts of stuff. So if you have a game where you're, you're playing the antagonist and I'm playing the protagonist and we each have equal agency, Right. And there isn't a central author to tell us which of us we should hope wins and which of us we shouldn't hope wins. The Twilight Imperium situation, the board game situation, right? Where everybody's a protagonist from somebody's point of view. Right. Defining the antagonist is difficult and you can kind of only do it based on, it's relative. Yeah. You do it based on, on perspective. But now in a game where you have a GM type situation in which the GM controls not just the antagonists, but also controls the weather and the topography mm -hmm. and the premise and the pacing and so much stuff right the antagonism that is possible from the gm versus the antagonism that is possible from all the forces the gm's control can be confused right right i guess that's that's kind of what i was getting yeah. to with like how those those roles kind of end up gelling together in the language so i think one of the assumptions in most tabletop rpgs is that the characters being played by the you know the characters that are envisioned by the players are going to be the protagonists of the mm -hmm. of the of the story or are going to be the main characters even if they are you know maybe if they, if it was being written as a novel maybe they would be bad guys or right. antagonists or whatever but for the purposes of play you know they're the people we're rooting for or at least 
um, or like in Fiasco. They're the point of view characters or yeah, whatever. Yeah. They're the point of view characters or they're the subjects yeah. that we care about. Yeah. Right. And I think that's a pretty standard assumption. And I think it's one that if you're going to challenge, you need to be very clear that you're challenging it. Right. Because it's a, it's a, a reading that is going to be brought into your game. I think by the general, the general populace, you know, acknowledging that there is kind of a, a endemic language issue of antagonist antagonism, you might have to define it for your own game, right? You, you, and in fact, it'd probably behoove you to specify what that means, like not just provide antagonism for a period, but like what does antagonism look like in your game, right? Right. That's a big one. Like, does that mean that this is literally like, is it a superhero game and antagonism is literally bad guys that you fight, <laughs> right. right? That's, which is very straightforward and easy to understand and, and, and useful and provocative and works. Is it gray ranks where antagon where it's like kind of like the, the unceasing progress of the set narrative structure provides one venue of antagonism. Like you're mm-hmm. already, you're already set in a thing where you are the underdogs and you're in this fight. And then there's also mechanical stuff where it's kind of rewards you for making choices that can negatively impact other characters and you don't have to take them. You don't have to make those choices, but if you do, there's like, it has a lot of kind of, if I remember right, I haven't read it in a long time or played it in quite a while, but uh, there's kind of a carrot stick aspect to the, how the mechanics work where like you get, you get some stuff for doing some things and maybe if you do a bad, you know, what would be a bad thing for someone else's character that might end up good for you if that's, the direction you want to take your character mm-hmm. but you don't have to so there's pressures and incentives on the mechanical level while the players aren't really antagonists to each other unless they make it a, a literarily antagonistic choice i would mm-hmm. i would argue and there's right like there's textual and subtextual antagonism and i don't by which i don't mean subtext in the sense of like i think this player is trying to mess with me as a player mm-hmm. but is where a player suggests oh and what if it's raining during this scene and the mm-hmm. other player's like well then i'm gonna have a penalty at all of my dexterity checks right mm-hmm. and that but you're like, and the GM is like, but I think that's a great idea or it makes sense. We warned about rain before, whatever, right? These kind of things. But versus right. the literal you, textual antagonism, which is where my player turns on you. Sure. Yeah. 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 Um, and also when the GM says your character is experiencing, you have such doubts, you're not sure if this is the right thing to do. And the player's like, no, I'm sure. Don't tell me. Don't. Yeah. You, you're not allowed to do that. I mean, that's the uh, why a lot of games and a lot of GM advice stays away from like, don't mind control characters. Right. Right. Because. That's one of the most obviously, I think, experientially, you know, over over many years has happened to many people where it's like once I once I start telling you what your character thinks and once I start telling you what your character does, then why are you even here? Right. Right. Especially if it starts changing your character. So there's that. But a lot of games do have the ability to, if not like control your character in that way, but like frame them into a into a new scene or offer you an incentive to act a certain way mm-hmm. that you can take or not take. And those can be more subtly, those can be used differently. They can be used to celebrate your character or they can be used to uh, to push your character and give them a challenge. And they can speak to the character or to the player. The character might choose mm-hmm. to do a thing or the player might choose to do a thing mm-hmm. that puts their character in a spot that is interesting to the player. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Rocks fall, everybody dies. Right. That's antagonism of a of a kind it is the shared language example of really dickish thing to do well it's 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 the extreme example right that i think 
becomes in some cases, although it is based on actual experience, right? That becomes such a farce that people, I think, that yeah, the message is farcical. sometimes lost. Yeah, because Rocks Fall and Everybody Dies at least takes one sentence. Mm-hmm. The real, the worst form of game antagonism takes two and a half hours, right? And is when rocks fall every round until everyone's dead. Well, or <laughs> right. I mean, like it takes forever, yeah. and it's or, just constant. Or you know, the case where where you were you were all being fooled all along, right? Like every decision you made in good faith with all your knowledge and abilities and skills and whatever. Oh, it turns out, you know, it's a, it was all a dream example or, you know, this was all, this was all just in a simulation. Now we're going to play a different game or something like that. Now we're going to do that adventure again, except this time it'll count. Right. And it's like, (laughs) uh, so that flows into the relationship between antagonism and deprotagonization. Right. Right. Which I think that's, that's what we want to avoid again, except in a very specific case of a game where, the project of the game is to is to make a, some kind of statement about protagonization and deprotagonization. So there's kind of an outlier example for that. But generally, when you're designing your game, you want to strictly limit where... Hmm, how do I want to say this? I mean, it's easy to say when you're designing a game, you want to not create situations that are going to deprotagonize players, mm-hmm. right? But it's so contextual that that, that feeling and that interaction at the table is so contextual and there's only so much sometimes it's because of the game but it's often not i guess as a designer where can you what tools do you have at your disposal to if not outright preserve the ability of players to to participate and get a a, a good experience out of the game at least give like waypoints and, and guideposts and some kind of ability in your game for people to say oh wait this is where it's happening, right? Like, oh, this is where the, like, this thing you just did, that's de- deprotagonizing me, destroying my experience. How, how can we address that as designers? At one end of response, what we can do, right, is create a, as level a playing field as possible so that nobody has the ability to deprotagonize somebody else without clearly overstepping. Right, without it being a clear breaking of the social contract or the agreements that you've made to play the game or... Whatever. Which on one level is, makes me uncomfortable because it's when that happens in a game that might be about a skill that is not actually what the game is, says it's about. Like in a game that's about dexterity that says it's about dexterity where you slide tokens across a board to simulate your ability to, to hit an orc with an arrow. Mm-hmm. That game is clearly about involves dexterity. Right. RPGs, for example, tabletop RPGs are social games. They almost always involve a degree of social skills which will unbalance even the most... Not necessarily the most, but we'll, we'll, we can unbalance a very otherwise mechanically right. balanced system. I mean, you see that when like a strong personality dominates a table sure. out of proportion to the ability of their character to affect the mechanical you know, situation. Right. And I feel like when you have a, a system that appears in which the game expects that the players will be on equal footing and then the players are not on equal footing, that does two things in regards to the game to me. One is that the game may never actually, the systems and the mechanisms of the game may never realize that anything has been unbalanced. Hmm. And it shifts the unbalance and the ability to responsibly deal with it and productively deal with it completely into the social realm. Right. Um, I see this, for example, in, in games of fiasco with less so with one dominating personality and more often with two dominating personalities and one or more that are not dominating. Mm-hmm can get left behind or somebody else is telling them or arguing over what to do and derailing the whole game. Fiasco is agnostic to that, which is b- both kind of a strength to it and also not. 
if you come to that game with, with social skills, knowing how to deal with the other players, mm-hmm. it, it plays great. But there's almost no mechanism. Like if I give you a, a, a negative outcome die, and what I'm trying to communicate to you is stop doing that. That's not what the game systems are for. And right. it's not going to get across. And one of the benefits to having a, a GM or a DM style position in, a, in an RPG is that that imbalance in the player roles gives a player who is whose heart and mission is in the right place the ability to absorb, deflect, and put the and quash certain kinds of problems as they occur. Right. Which still many many problems migrate directly into the social space. But it, it means that if you have a, a GM who's doing the jobs and the job is clearly demarcated, then the game can provide systems like inspiration to players who, why, why haven't I gotten inspiration? Because you've been treating everybody like a jerk. Because you haven't been playing, you've just been mm-hmm. talking over everybody or whatever it is, right? It, it can, and that's, to me, still not necessarily the proper use of some of those systems. But it, regardless, what it means is that you can have conversations that are about play rather than us having to have a conversation about how Eric is being terrible to everybody and then instead of playing the game we have to have a four-hour conversation about how eric isn't invited anymore sure right and and i don't know how much of this is actually the business of a game designer right automatically to to, to address yeah because right because at a very fundamental level you know once you're once you've written the game you have no control over the social situation that the game enters into right right but you have control over what tools you've given to put the game back on right on on its feet Mm mm-hmm Right in that in, in a situation, mm-hmm. and I feel like uh, a very often quote unquote level games where everybody's got the same, all the players are the same, mm-hmm. uh, like a lot of board games, are so completely uninvolved in that process. They give you no tools to say like it, mm-hmm. like for, this is to me one of the classic examples of why Monopoly always destroys families <laughs> is mm-hmm. that it will reveal and exacerbate and do nothing to help you when somebody at the table starts using their existing knowledge of the other players to get their way. Mm-hmm in a deal or whatever it is. So is there a responsibility and or an opportunity in RPGs as social games that are about conversations and are about, are are almost always on some level about power dynamics, even if they are about the constantly growing powers of a swordsman or the questionable powers of a wicked king or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. what kind of a responsibility and opportunity do we come into contact with by putting these games into people's lives? So the flip side of the coin, right? Like, so on the one hand, you can't control the social situation, right? But on the other hand, games, what games do is change social situations. Right. Right. That's, that's what it is. You know, you're, you're arranging the, the, the social dynamic at the table in a certain way. Right. So in that way, there's an amazing amount of, of potential power, whether it's explicit or, or implicit in the game's design. I mean, I think the, the, the ability of mechanical tools to, to reach up into the social layer, right? I think they're most powerful when they're aligned with what the game's about, right? When, when you don't have the friction of, oh, we need to stop the game right. to deal with this, this thing that just happened. And instead it's, oh, because this game is about this, because our Insomniac Fighter Pilot game already has this element of people stretching beyond their limits, mm-hmm. right? Maybe there's some kind of mechanical system or whatever about spending spending stuff that you don't have yet, like kind of banking against your future self in order to push through a situation or something, right? right. So we already have this whole mechanical system plus this implicit thematic direction of like overdrawing your limits and people reaching their breaking point and what happens, right? And then if someone 
is at the table and is like, I haven't even been in this in in these scenes. Like this person's blocking me out for whatever reason. Um, I'm not getting what I need from, you know, from Joe. You know, he's not giving me the 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 opportunity that I want to interact with this character. Well, here's this mechanical tool about reaching past what I normally can do in order to do something superb and you know inject myself into that situation, mm-hmm. right? And then it's thematic and it's mechanical and it might also be addressing the social situation and it gives the 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 game i don't want to say absorb right but what's the word i'm looking for um well but it's actually it's like a shock absorber so absorb is i think the word i'm thinking of right Mm -hmm. but is that it gives the game shocks so that the game will can keep moving over rough terrain until and 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 so that you can take the game back to smoother territory instead of like you say the game stopping right especially if it's a game that's going to be about something or potentially about something important mm-hmm. or serious enough it, that that it's an off-road vehicle that it's meant to go right. off certain polite routes and, and into is, yeah, yeah other territory. And this is, I think, separate from from like the X card and stuff like that, where that's mm-hmm. about like problematic content. And this is more about like you say, getting like getting through a rough patch and onto smoother terrain. And it's not necessarily about like the fictional content, right? right. It's not necessarily, yeah. I mean, it might be. They're probably related, but it's not necessarily about. Um, comfort zones and stuff like that it's about you know these other you know it's about other social dynamics that you don't even know are there until they happen in a game because i think i I know and may not have been there until the game creates a situation where me and my 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 friend of 20 years decide that we want the story to turn out differently but yeah, yeah, yeah and i think we've been at i mean i know i've been at tables where it's that like all of a sudden like oh how did we get here Mm-hmm. right and it's not really the game's fault and it's not really anyone's fault but all of a sudden there's this very difficult to resolve clash between two players or between the gm and a player or whatever right and if there's tools available in the game to be like all right well let's just do this and get past it you know that's great and also i don't want anyone to mistake me for saying like don't solve social problems unless you can do it with the game like that's not what i'm saying like clearly if there's a breakdown of communication if there's a real issue if there's some kind of like personal conflict that is disruptive and problematic and damaging like stop the game and deal with it it's more like that there's a but i think there's a there's a area of uh overlap between non-game destroying social problems and the tools that the game gives to to smooth those out and get back on track I think especially when it's about, like you said, communication, because communicating through a game during a game is different than just communicating, right? Mm -hmm. Because a game provides to a certain extent a language that we talk through that affects how and what we can say. And if we're also all learning the game or the game is expanding or the game is new to all of us or new to only some of us, then we're talking in different ways. So the question is, for example, if I find out that this dragon is about to kill my character and I am questioning on multiple levels whether or not that's fair... Like if it's, mm-hmm. if it's legal play or why it targeted me or what you're rolling behind your screen or whatever, why I don't have inspiration right now and if I had it, I might be alive or whatever, right? There's a lot of communication that the that, that games obfuscate or get in the way of fruitfully because they cause us to reexamine. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of communication that games can get in the way of that is not helpful. And there's a lot of miscommunication and things that are happening whether the game is being played or not because humans <laughs> are playing it. Nathan, using the game of chess and the game of chess only, please portray to me the dynamic of the musical arts scene in the first part of the 21st century, right? That's not what chess is for. Right, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. I want you to communicate with me using the game of chess mm-hmm. that you want to 
that you want to divorce me, right? That's not what chess is for, mm-hmm. right? Scenes can do that. Art right. can do that. But if the notion is I want you to communicate only using, only using the set that we've built for you on this stage, play a scene on that stage in which these characters want to divorce, you go, okay, like that, 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 that's a much more open space. Right. Look at a game, uh, uh, games that like Grey Ranks, which actually is very realistic and are based in realism, right? But yeah. again, so using Grey Ranks, talk to me about the plight of Polish child soldiers and warriors in World War II. Right. Okay. Now using Grey Ranks, relate to me the story of the Goonies. Okay. Right? Yeah. Not all games are for the same mm-hmm. topics and that they communicate things in very different ways. Mm-hmm. If games have a certain language like parallel, and they're not only languages and they're not totally languages. Mm-hmm. But if your game has no way to talk about the fact that my character has lost protagonist status. Yeah. Right? Then the players have to revert to the the raw social level, the human level that they had before. Right, and that's the other thing. A lot of people are very good at putting their character in a spot that the character doesn't want to be in because the player enjoys playing that struggle. Mm-hmm. And and players are good often, in my experience, of identifying those places for themselves because we're afraid, what if the GM, what if I say out loud, I hope there aren't rat men in this dungeon because mm-hmm. I hate rat, oh, I just said it. Yep. You know, or whatever. You know your fears better than somebody else does. Right. And so you give voice to them. My experience is that gamers will give voice to them to some level of fears that their characters and or their players have automatically mm-hmm. because it's that, it's that kind of conversation. And this is actually a good example, I guess, is, is, is what does the game do to either make, and this is about, like you say, celebration or, or maybe confounding, mm-hmm. those being the options, uh, the broad options, to celebrate a player for sharing what they are afraid might be beyond this dungeon door right? versus punishing them for mm-hmm. participating in the conversation. Like I as a GM, this is something I, I try to do as a designer, but I know I do as a GM, is I don't penalize players for having an idea and saying it out loud and then not wanting to follow through with it. Mm-hmm. We've ever seen those, uh, a GM, right? Who, and I feel like this, I think a lot of GMs go through this phase, so uh, uh, it's totally legit. But it's where you say, no, you said it. That means your character said it. Right. No, you said it. That means it, that means you did it. Mm. Or and like, I go, whoa, whoa, mm-hmm. whoa. Or like, oh, you didn't say you put your armor on, so yeah. you're not wearing your armor in this fight. <laughs> right. Like, you know. That, that kind of pernicious kind of approach. And, the, and that's antagonism of the player, right? Mm-hmm. And the character through the player. Right. Versus, yeah, that kind of celebratory, where, where somebody says, man, I hope there aren't you know rat things in the side of this door. And then you look at the DM and you go. And he's like, there's totally rat Yeah, and he's like, I, you just, hear I just gave that to you, didn't I? He goes, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to when you know the player's like, I seriously cannot fight another rat thing. Mm-hmm. I seriously do not want another combat encounter with those things. Mm-hmm. And that's reading this, reading a tone in a way that a game can't do without the mm-hmm. players present. So one one technique that both as a uh, something to design into your game and then also just as a, a GM technique that's kind of applicable to lots of games is often called fishing, where instead of telling players what's happening, you ask them what their you know what their character sees or does or thinks about a thing. Right. And so I learned this from from uh, the Mountain Witch, and it's in lots of other games and in various forms and flavors. But you know, saying like, "Okay, you you hear some kind of creature behind this door. What is it, right? Or what do you?" But you can be really pointed, right? Like, what do you really not want to fight? You know, that you hear behind this door. Uh, it's kind of the tossing the ball over and being like, "You can," and you can be you can you can be obfuscatory or you can be very straight up in your answer. It's it's your choice, right? Like, what if you say like. Oh, I, it's it's absolute silence, and I just get this horrified look, right? And then now it's back to me, be like, okay, what is what are they going to be terrified of? That's quiet, right? You know, like it's a there's a 
level of interplay where it does leave it to the player to decide where to take it. Yeah. Which I really like. Yeah. And it also shares the, may not the burden, but it, 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 it means that the, the GM in that situation or the other player, because this can be constructed in a multiple GM or even just a player to player thing in a, in a game where maybe players are able to ask each other these questions. Like if I'm the gunner in the jet and you're the, you know, you're the pilot, maybe there's some, something in there where like, I ask you what you see and what mm-hmm. you, you know, or whatever, where we're flying and your reply to me is enters the fiction and then is what's happening. And the GM's actually not part of that conversation. So putting, putting these kind of like fishing questions or some kind of framework for getting someone else's buy-in into what you're doing or trying to fill out an idea that you have with someone else's input that could work into like a couple different layers of, of mechanical relationships or structure or whatever else you have in your game. One thing that I wanted to make sure to point out, though, is this idea that by, by the time I learned of it, it had a name, but I'm sure it, other people have thought of this over the years and, and phrased it in different ways, but uh, called the Sega Principle, named mm-hmm. after Paul Sega of uh, My Life with Master and The Clay That Woke and many other fine games. But he kind of put words to this idea where if you're generating your own antagonism and then overcoming it, that's boring. In RPGs, where you're, I think specifically where you're advocating for your character, right? It gets a little slippery if maybe you're in a situation where you create, you're like, and now we're going to see these terrible people get their just rewards or something. But even then, like, it's, I guess I'm just trying to distinguish it from like as an author, right? You obviously right. are the one who is creating the antagonism that then your your point of view character or your protagonists are going to overcome. But in a game where you want both that both that surprising and satisfying set of outcomes. Mm-hmm. If I'm like, all right, here's here's my character. He wants to end this war by bombing everyone really quickly, and uh, and but now my plane is is out of bombs. And my base has been destroyed, but I also find a, you know, manage to fix a Jeep and get to another base and get all my bombs back. That's my story. That's the game I want to play, right? Like, right. let's do that now. There's a monster on the other side of the store. How many hit points does it have? What's the difficulty to hit it? Mm. What kind of weapon does it have? List me all this stuff. All right now, fight it. Or Except that not even fight it because that mm. still has a, an element of chance. <laughs> Yeah, and it, you know, it, it it's a it's a scale like anything else. Like yeah. I think again like with fishing, you know, you might be getting I might ask you what you hear behind the door and then turn that back on you right. and you've you've set it up, but then I have to execute, right? Mm-hmm. It's not it's a, it's about kind of if you're setting up your own challenges and then executing on them, where's the tension, where's the drama? It'll almost always be more exciting and fun and fulfilling for that to be split up. There's a whole really fascinating element to this, which I, I think it was part of what helped me realize how well the Sega principle proves itself, mm-hmm. which is, again, in the in the creator audience dynamic that every player has in an RPG, mm-hmm. which is that you can't just be you can't be creator and audience to yourself all the time, but you can do it. But like you say, it's a it, it's a dial. You can do it sometimes, but not all the time. And sometimes you want to not know how things are going to turn out. And when you create a challenge and then also thwart it at the difficulty that you set for it. When you say, when you create your own antagonism, it's because there's no, you might even be engaged, but you don't have a question of how it's going to turn out. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you've just become on one level a storyteller to everybody else. That can be fine in the short term, right? Where you have a particular moment where I'm told, okay, I can, I can defeat this goblin however I want. And I, and I describe a, 
in three sentences how the goblin almost kills me, but I kill him. Mm-hmm. That that was different for me than it was for you because I knew the whole time that I what I rolled and you didn't. But without the unexpected outcome, the satisfaction has nothing to jump off of. It has it doesn't mm-hmm. actually land. It just walks into a room. Well, I think what's key is that the the principle doesn't say it doesn't work. Right. Right. Or that's that not it's, effective. Right. It says that it's boring. Exactly. And that's that's what I'm, part of what I'm getting at because and I think this is why the the author to player dynamic is so important in this is that so many authors I know and, and and this works when I'm working on my own fiction is that you don't necessarily know how something turns out when you're writing it. Mm-hmm. You know maybe the larger story but you're like I know and then you you finish the chapter and you go well I know they've got to get out of this burning building and tomorrow I'll find out how they do. Right. That's exciting. The most boring part of writing is when you've done Everything is 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 figured out and plotted out to such a point that now I just have to do seventy thousand words right. of it. Time. Now I just have to write it out. Yeah, time to type the words. Yeah, yeah, right for me at least. Mm-hmm. And that was when that was to me the fact that because the 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 demonstration of of whether or not the second principle is confounded by the authorial relationship or proven by it to me mm-hmm. it was always fascinating because to me it, it, it the way an author engages with their work can prove the second principle <laughs> right. where you say. Right, that well, I know exactly everything that's ever going to happen to this character. Now I just have to write it out over and over and over again in three hundred thousand word books. I, without knowing the specifics of it, but I can imagine that that would be a, the kind of thing that would vex somebody like George R. R. Martin, who's this far into a story that he knows more or less the characters enough to know what they're going to do and what's going to happen. That now he just has to write three hundred thousand word novels about it. Mm-hmm. That this is maybe not the most fun part of the process for him. Right, <laughs> right, right. And it might be great for the audience, but it could still be boring. For the mm-hmm. person setting the goal and overcoming it, right. and everything. So I think on a basic level, when you're designing, you know, designing your game and kind of identifying where where is the antagonism coming from, what is its nature, what is the goal of it. Yeah, I think what what happens is in the name of giving players strong tools to 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 see to do what they want and see what they want happen in the game. Sometimes that's when it, to, in my experience, tips over to setting up your own problems and then solving them. It's not something like, oh, make sure you watch out for this uh, across the board, because I think generally we're pretty good at dividing up that um, ability, especially when it's a more traditional single GM, multiple player setup. But especially when you get into like a fully share or co-GM kind of space and you're trying to give everyone the same tools to affect what's going on in the game, that's where... I've seen this tip over into like kind of violating Sega principle territory where we all have the same amount of points to spend to make things happen. And I can only spend points on things that affect my character, for example, and there's no additional tool for affecting other people's characters. Where does it come from? I mean, it comes from somewhere else and that's somewhere else in the game, but that's kind of a, a potential pitfall to look out for that I've seen. None of those things exist in the game. None of those tools can be found lying around for the GM to use until, you know, we build them for them. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider supporting us at Patreon so that we can continue to bring these episodes to you. My Patreon is at patreon.com slash ndpaoletta. My Patreon is at patreon.com slash wordwill. You can find all of our older episodes, as well as everything else Design Games Podcast related, at designgamespodcast.com. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just...